Welcome once again, wrestling fans, to Classic Wrestling Memories. This will be Volume 38. We are going to be talking the inaugural Great American Bash that happened on July 6, 1985, at the American Legion Memorial Stadium in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, much like the early Starcades and the first WrestleMania, this was a show that was carried on closed-circuit television because pay-per-view was still largely new to the industry. And we did talk about closed-circuit as a whole on our first episode, talking Starcade 1983. This is a year and a half later. We also talked about it on our episode talking the first WrestleMania. Joining me for this edition, my usual co-host for Classic Wrestling Memories, coming at you from a nice, soft, padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. This is going to be fun because this is like right in the middle of my super-duper fandom as a kid. I mean, Crazy Train is, is 14 years old, 15 at this point. I think 80. this, this would have been the summer between my seventh and eighth grade year of middle school. I am completely and utterly invested in everything Jim Crockett and wrestling at this point. So it sounds like this to you is kind of similar to like what I was for WWE in the late eighties, early nineties before I became a WCW fan. Yeah. I was obviously a fan, 83, 84, 85. When Dusty's booking took full hold was when I really started to pay attention to what was going on and I was sold. Oh, did you get a run in from your cat there? Yeah, can you hear him purring? Sorry, oh, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't you know, me? when Shadow Cat sounds like that, I, I kind of tend to run for cover. <laughs> <laughs> he has a little bit of allergies, so sometimes he's a little stuffy. I hope he doesn't sneeze in my face. He likes to do that, too. That's always <laughs> lovely. So we got a third one in the commentary Cooper booth. Has joined, yes, John Cooper has joined us on color. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody, get down. So you're right, Seth. Like, like we're talking about Crockett's Baldwin Baseball. It's an outdoor show. But you have to remember, before this point, they... We're only having one big show a year, which was Starcade. Now, Starcade had had two successful, 83, 84, but this is before Starcade 85, which, of course, is Thanksgiving night. We've talked at length before. We talked about Dusty and his booking. He was always the one that had this idea of the big event. So I think this was just an example of Dusty going, okay, it works in the fall. Why not do one in the summertime, too? And I think that's what kind of was the birth of the Great American Bash. And for what it's worth, how awesome a title is that for a show? Oh, yeah. Just makes you think red, white, and blue, and America, jump up on your chair and salute. Back to what we've talked about many times, the holidays being big time for wrestling in the territories. Well, we've already got a Thanksgiving show. Now let's do one around the 4th of July. Right, because what better time to have the Great American Bash than right around that 4th of July? People out of work. It made sense. Right, right. Now, now I, I think from a real-life standpoint, if I recall correctly, July 6th was actually the day that the Declaration of Independence had finished signing. They started signing it earlier, right. but I think it started being yes. signed on the... Right, exactly. And that's fitting since this show was on the 6th. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember, I believe the 6th was a Saturday. And we already had, obviously, with it being on Thanksgiving night, Starcade was on a Thursday. This was the 4th would have been on a Thursday. They were just waiting to the weekend to maximize the, the chance of having a, a large crowd. Because it is early in the Crockett's attempts to expand nationally and compete with Vince, they're actually once again beating Vince to the punch. Because SummerSlam doesn't come along to what, 88, I think? I think it's 88, yeah. So three years you're talking. So it's beaten Vince's big summer show by three years, like Starcade is beating Mania by two. So once again, I mean, the, the Crockett's were ahead of Vince, but Vince eventually won the war. Well, one of the things that I still 
say to this day, and I think you'll agree with me here, there is a lot that up-and-coming wrestlers, bookers, and promoters, there's a lot that they could learn from Dusty's booking, even in this point, because I went through and watched what I could find 1985 Crockett Television. It used to be on the network, but apparently it hasn't been carried over to Peacock yet, at least the stuff that I had seen several months back. So I had to go to the tube of views to find uh, the stuff that I was needing. And a couple things that I noticed just watching the programming, and this was, of course, the studio programming. Everything was kind of all done in-house. This was, I think, really while Vince was still upping the game on the national level by showing things, everything was in an arena and the thousands of people in attendance and such. Uh, these weekly shows for Crockett were still very much the studio environment, and there, I, I doubt there were more than 50 or 100 people in studio for these, right? Oh, yeah. The, what you were watching, you sent me the list, was the old 605 show. You look at the time frame we're talking here, spring, summer of 1985. This is right after Black Saturday and Crockett buying back the time slot, which I think happened, what, like May maybe of 85? So maybe a couple of months. Yeah. So It, it was uh, around you know, WrestleMania, if I recall correctly. Right, because it hadn't been long that Crockett had bought the time slot at Georgia and had started having this national cable overlay. So the majority of his television angles were the, the Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, which was Crockett's A-show, and Worldwide Wrestling, which was his B-show. These were weekly viewing events for me. And I liked the 605, but they didn't mean as much to me as a fan here in the territory. And those shows were not the studio. You know how the old 605 was. They were recorded live to tape on Saturday mornings at like like 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And they got maybe, like you said, 50 people, if that. They only had fans on, what, two sides of the ring, if I remember right? Yeah, something like Usually they were positioned so you could kind of get close up to some of the reactions or if there were any good-looking females in the audience. Yeah, of course, since it was Turner, they had those big, huge floor cameras like you would see on the newscasts, whereas that's not what you had on Mid-Atlantic Championship and Worldwide. Those were coming from the buildings. They would have specific TV tapings or they'd send a camera crew to a house show. So that gave you the feeling of the live crowd. And that was, you know, a building in the Crockett's at that time, a place here like Greenville or a place like Spartanburg or Asheville or Charleston, whatever. You had closer to, you know, 1,500, 2,000 screaming crazy fans. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the interviews were done live at the buildings with the backdrop and whoever the host was interviewing the talent. It sounds like it would have been closer to kind of what Vince was doing. It's just Vince put right. in the snazzier colors and the, the better lighting and all that stuff. Right. I mean, it was, don't get me wrong, the Crockett's, I think I brought it up before when we've talked to Crockett's before, around this time that the Crockett's had contracted out a company called NEMA, which uh, was National Electronics Mobile Operations. And they were actually out of Rock Hill, South Carolina. And they didn't go around in a submarine attacking other battleships, did they? No, no, no. Oh, they, wrong had, no. Okay. They, but they were a company based in Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is a suburb of Charlotte, right on the North Carolina, South Carolina line. And they were probably one of the first independent companies to have a truck that had like all the editing and recording equipment in it. And that was who would go out to these buildings and do the recording. And then I think they even helped in the editing afterwards. Whereas the 605 that you're talking about, like I said, that was recorded live to tape at like 11 o'clock on Saturday mornings. Dusty would be in the back with the headset on talking to David and Tony in their earpiece 
about, you know, make this angle go longer, whatever. And then with very little, if any editing, that tape was played again at Super 5 a few hours later. So there was that, that the marked difference, not only in the live crowd versus the small studio crowd, there was the, obviously there was time to do stuff like post on the Crockett stuff. And that was the stuff that would have vignettes because you could, you could in the post and edit could edit it into those vignettes. Well, well, for whatever vignettes there were for the time. So you're, you're talking a transition period. Crockett's kind of deciding I'm going to try to go head to head with Vince. He's just bought the time slot on TBS from Vince. He's just beginning to use 605 World Championship Wrestling, which was hosted by Tony Schiavone and David Crockett as his flagship, but he still hasn't gotten away from heavily using Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, which was hosted by Bob Cottle and Johnny Weaver, and Worldwide Wrestling, which was the B-Syndicated show, which was hosted by David Crockett and a rotating assortment of color guys. Johnny Weaver, I think in 86, Cornette started hosting for a while once the Cornette, the Midnights came in, just whatever. So, yeah. And and just to, to make it clear, when you said syndicate, so though the Worldwide and the Mid-Atlantic, that's the stuff you would have found on your, your UHF uh, syndicated stations. No, not UHF. Remember, this is the South. This is on regular television. Okay. I watched Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling on Channel 4, the NBC affiliate, at noon on Saturday. And I watched Worldwide Wrestling at 12.30 on Saturday on Channel 13, the ABC affiliate out of Asheville. Okay. But if it, if it came in my area, that I probably would have been yes. on the UHF station right. then. It would have been, yeah. And, and they didn't syndicate. None of the territories did outside mm-hmm. of their own markets, obviously. But in the places where wrestling was big, like Mid-Atlantic, like Memphis, these weren't UHF stations their, their TV was on. This was on mm-hmm. regular broadcast network. They just worked them into slots where they didn't already have something coming from the, the national you know, networks. Like yeah. I said, noon on Saturday and 1230 afternoon on Sunday. That's the middle of the day on two national network affiliates. That's as mainstream as you get, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think in my case, I, I really didn't watch that much wrestling around this time. And I, I'd seen the WWF stuff because, of course, this is the, on the WWE side, this is the height of the rock and wrestling era and all that. Right. But right, right. I believe AWA would air on Channel 9 where I was, which it wasn't a national uh, affiliate, but it was, you know, WGN was a super station, of course. It, it, it would carry, yeah, it was yeah. similar yeah, to TBS. Yeah. I know like Mid Atlantic Championship Wrestling in Charlotte was on, I want to say the CBS affiliate, but like the NBC affiliate here. I know mm-hmm. CBS affiliate in Columbia, South Carolina. So that was, I mean, like, I'm familiar, obviously with mid-atlantic but that was true everywhere if you went to oklahoma city bill watts had his television you know power or the power pro or power hour or whatever it was that was on a regular affiliate that wasn't mm-hmm. on a uhf at two o'clock in the morning that was probably on at like noon or one o'clock in the afternoon on like the cbs affiliate okay you know that that that's how powerful this is why i'm always bringing up you unless you lived in the territories as a fan you don't understand it, it's it's the battle that Cornette always has a Russo. Russo being in a big money market growing up like New York City just didn't understand how much a part of the culture it was in these smaller territories. This is why these guys were huge stars. You didn't just see them at two o'clock in the morning on some UH. These were guys you saw every week on, on the NBC affiliate at noon. So when you saw them in the grocery store, that was a, that was a star. Right. 
So I guess we will move into the angles that were leading up to the event, and mm-hmm. we'll go more or less in order of the matches here. Now, J.J. Dillon was the manager of Ron Bass, uh, and mm-hmm. who would in a few years go on to be outlaw Ron Bass uh, in WWE. Mm-hmm. And approximately one month prior to the Great American Bash, Bass unsuccessfully challenged Ron Garvin for the NWA National Championship. I think it ended on a DQ. That's just trying to go from memory here. But shortly after that, J.J. started courting Nature Boy Buddy Landell. And I know some younger fans maybe would hear this say, Nature Boy, isn't that what Ric Flair calls himself? Well, yes, Buddy Landell also called himself the Nature Boy. And if memory serves, that was intentional because there was going to be an eventual meeting between Rick and Buddy, right? So if we if we started by match by match and the angles going into it, first the first match was Ron Bass as a newly turned babyface against Buddy Landell being managed by JJ Dillon. Yeah, because I remember when I when I looked at the card on this and when the match started, I saw Buddy Landell versus Ron Bass. Who's the babyface? Now we'd already explained <laughs> the background here that that, that JJ Dillon was kind of courting Buddy over. Bass, right. but it's just like when I first saw it, I'm like, who's the baby face in this match? <laughs> yeah, when D- when Dusty first came into the territory, he brought a lot of those Florida guys with him. Rock were two of those guys, and it was it was buddies new in the territory as well, coming into the spring, and th- because he was was a nature boy, there was money that Dusty saw in a nature boy versus nature boy feud with Flair, because like right. I had said, Flair was. Flair was a baby face in this territory, but he was a heel everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And Flair had done the same thing with Buddy Rogers 10 years before and finally wound up beating Buddy Rogers, I believe, in Spartanburg and, and claiming the title Nature Boy. So this is Dusty kind of booking where several different moving parts are going on at the same time. He's wanting, to, you have to remember, Ron Bass and Black Bart have been tagging together under the, the, the tutor, the, the managership of J.J. Dillon. He wants to keep J.J. heel. He wants to keep J.J. in a pretty high-profile position because he's one of his guys. He wants to elevate Ron Bass, or sorry, not Ron Bass. He wants to elevate Buddy Landell in preparation for a possible Nature Boy versus Nature Boy feud. And quite frankly, if you look at the if you look at the you know, the whole roster, he had himself and he had Matt, but he needed some other baby faces. He had Manny Fernandez, he had Boogie, but neither one of them were ever really presented as like top top guys. So I think part of it was probably just wanting to, to have another baby face that he could uh, have on his side. Ron Bass was going to be it. So this all makes it all makes sense. I would think with Bass as a baby face, he would have been a similar type of baby face as Ronnie Garvin was. Although I think Ronnie Garvin was probably a little bit better in the charisma promo category, at least as baby face. But you have that guy who is tough. Yeah, well, I, I always saw it as like, I mean, not that he hadn't been in the territory and he didn't believe in him. I, I can't remember what the situation was at the time, but... Ron's essentially going to be a poor man's black guy mulligan, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, you could say that, yeah. And as far as the baby facing, because you have to look, this is before the rock and rolls that come into the territory. The Road Warriors hadn't come in full time, which we'll talk about later on during their match, you know. It's just him and Magnum. And that was a guy that Dusty had, had been allied with in Florida. So you a lot going on. And the angle was, all the things we talked about Dusty from my book towards, it just makes sense that Rock Bass, this original veteran, feels that he's being betrayed by his longtime manager for this new young up-and-comer. So you turn him babyface, they feud, and that's pretty much, as far as the babyfacing, there's Boogie and there's Manny Fernandez, but there's um, no, I don't, Ronnie Garvin's not in the territory yet, I don't think. 
All right, if it is, he's just come in. Sam Houston, which we'll talk more about him later too, but he hadn't got a push yet. You've got, who else? Trying to think other baby faces. That would be Brad Armstrong in, in the territory. There's just not a whole lot of guys that Dusty can align himself with against these slew of heels. And so, you know, Ron's a guy that he trusts him. He knows him. He, he knows how to get over. And he's, he's a Cowboys. It's Dusty. He's always going to have a, a Cowboy in a top space other than himself, isn't he? Right. And, and it is worth mentioning. You, you talked about the slew of heels. It is worth mentioning that on TV in these days, I would think the Crockett's are a perfect example of it with their programming. There usually uh-huh. were people involved in multiple feuds. I think especially heels, since there's so many of them, where they have multiple people gunning for them at once. The Crockett's, remember, are a heel territory as far as champions go. Right. It's going to make sense that your champion's going to have multiple contenders to his title. Right. Right, because right. we're, we're talking about eventually Flair facing Nikita to defend the title, but a lot of the buildup, a lot of the TV before this event was actually gearing towards Magnum, that there was going to be a showdown mm-hmm. with Magnum and Flair for the title. Right. You know, that's just Dusty laying the groundwork for where he wanted to go with Magnum down the road. And you've also got, this all becomes, like you brought up earlier, Bass had just lost the national title to Ron, which gives Ron the rocket as he comes into Terry Garvin, that is, as he comes in the territory. That's going to become an important thing because they've just bought Georgia. That was a Georgia territory title. Yeah, that'd be the type of thing in these days somebody like me would have been watching and say, I'm going to root for the guy named Ron. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So this will become important later on at Starcade, the national title. I think he had this idea of putting that belt on Buddy somewhere down the road because now you got the national champion against the world champion if you're going to do that Nature Boy versus Nature Boy, you know? But remember, like I said, the U.S. title was a Crockett title for the Mid-Atlantic Territory. The national title was a Georgia territorial title, and they had just bought Georgia. Right. That was the title that would have been on the TBS programming before. Right. Fit before and Black Spots. Saturday. Right. Right. And Ron Garvin was one of those guys that came over with the Georgia bike because he was a Georgia guy. You know, mm-hmm. he wasn't a mid-Atlantic guy. This is right when he came over. So anyway, before you can get to all the stuff we're talking about, that's what this angle is all about. You know, it's just split up the longtime heel manager from the heel veteran. Turn him baby face, take the new protege, and it makes a lot of sense. Actually, it's pretty sound booking when you think about right, it. Right, right. It's one of those stories that almost always works when it's done well. It's a right. trope. And we all know Buddy, for his own demons, gotten in his own way. Even early on, he had talent. That's just why Dusty saw this in him. And you can't go wrong with Ron Bass and J.J. Dillon, two old hands that have been around the business forever, know how to get over, know what they're doing. I could see this. This is, that's easy. That's a booker's dream. <laughs> yeah. Have guys like that. Young guy knows what he, look, it's obvious he has a bright future if he doesn't get in his own way, which unfortunately Buddy did, and two seasoned veterans that know how to do things. I don't see how you couldn't book that to work out, right? <laughs> right, right. Now, well, next, what was the next match? The next match on the card would be the Ole Anderson and Arn Anderson. They were, the, I believe, the third incarnation of the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. So they were calling uh, themselves the new Minnesota Wrecking Crew. Right, and they were the national tag team champions, which again, as as you had said, would have been the Georgia uh, territory. Right. Would have been the Georgia territory. Because I remember when Vince came in, let me go a little history here. When Vince came in and bought the time slot, Ole in protest left and created championship wrestling from Georgia that had the nine o'clock in the morning time slot on TBS. And he was booking and he had been a star here in the Carolinas and he starts helping Dusty book some of the Georgia guys. So you would have seen the national titles, Ron Garvin and the Andersons with the national, more on the TBS stuff than you would have seen on the mid-Atlantic stuff. Until the buyout of Jordan. You follow what I'm saying? 
Right. And the feuds going up to this, they were attacking, meaning the Andersons, they were attacking Buzz Sawyer a lot. And mm. Dick Slater was kind of uh, Sawyer's friend in this. They did, And that brought these two tough guys together to battle Ole and Arn. I think they were trying to blind Buzz Sawyer. They attacked his younger brother, Breton mm. Sawyer. So it was all that mm. kind of personal thing because you're attacking family. You're trying to go for the right. eyes. I think it was... Brett Sawyer was cutting the promo about how, well, it's if it's your arm or your leg or something like that, you can always get it back. If you injure your eyes, you might not ever get that back. And that that's how it was the heels going too far, so to speak, in the babyface's minds. Right. And, I, and once again, Dick and Buzz are Atlanta guys. They're Georgia guys, not Carolina guys. In fact, Dick and, and Buzz were helping Oldie with the booking, if I remember right at that time. They weren't long for the company after this. Did Slater have a WWE run around this time? I, I want to say. Maybe. I can't remember. No, I, no, I that think was he had, before I, then, wasn't it? Okay, I think he had a that cup was of like coffee. 80, that was like 84. Didn't he have a run with Dick Murdoch as the as the, the tag champs? Might have uh, been, or that might have been Adonis. I'm trying to remember now. I, um, I, it all runs together for me. Well, I'm um, open to correction. Again, this is just kind of going by memory. We, we kind of went off on this tangent here, but I thought Slater had a brief WWE run at some point here. He might have, but, but Buzz never left Atlanta. Right, because of course, Buzz had had in '81. It had that last battle of Atlanta, that famous blood bath blow off match in the Omni against Tommy Rich. Mm-hmm. And so Buzz had never left Atlanta. He just turned babyface. That is all. Right. And it, it, let's be honest, Arn's the lightest worker in that match. The other three guys are are crowbars. Yeah. So if you like old school slobber knocker to steal a you know a term from Jr., that's the match, ain't it? <laughs> right. And. As we always say about Arn Anderson, and we also say uh, Robert Fuller and uh, I, I get and Harley kind of being in the in that vein where it's like Arn had no twenties or thirties. He somehow went immediately from eighteen to forty, and then he has somehow right. managed to say forty years old ever since. And he's young at this point. He's right. only yeah, in his twenties. Yeah, but I think he looks he's in like his mid to late Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm, now part of it is probably just that he lost his hair so early. But right. but yeah, he he looked like he was forty here. He looked. Exactly the same. In fact, you might even say he might have looked a little bit older here than when he retired 10 years later, and he was 37 then. So <laughs> Right. And he, he looks, he, he hadn't started to bald yet, but it was, you could tell he was, that Caroline was, thin, was yeah. creeping back a little bit. Yeah, he had the comb And Ole's another one that looked like he was 35 or 40 from the time he was 18. Right. <laughs> so, you, you once again, you have pretty much Georgia guys being involved, whereas Buddy and Ron and JJ were, were Carolina guys. Now you got a Georgia few. And... Mm-hmm. It's it's long long after. This is probably something that Dusty didn't book as much as Oli did. You follow what I'm saying? Right. It would make sense. But it's just it's a slobber knocker match. I, I when mm-hmm. I booked, I always like to have one Haas fighter slobber knocker kind of match on your show because there are fans that are coming just to see that kind of match. They just want to see a fight. I'm one of them. Yeah. And those four guys, they're going to give you just a fight, aren't they? Oh yeah, absolutely. You're going to have technical stuff because the Andersons are all about taking the arm and breaking it down, but. Yeah, two perfect modern was... guys to uh, kind of give that Haas fight analogy to, uh, at least in my mind, are guys like Samoa Joe or uh, Rusev, Miro. Those are those yes. type of guys. Yeah. yeah. They do that yeah. physical, a uh, little bit of brawling, a little bit of power. Just, they, it's just Haas. Mm-hmm. It's just Haas fight. And we've said before, those four guys, Arn, Ole, Slater, and, and, and Buzz. They definitely fit the look like it looked like they win a fight, Bill, don't they? Right, exactly. Yeah, you, you, you could, could totally see <laughs> Slater in the Harley role if he starts and ends the fight and then just uh, mm. lights up a cigar and a beer afterward. Because you know? he did. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. he did. <laughs> and Buzz did too. So. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
Now, there was a six-man tag match, and this would be the type of thing that I, I don't know if showcase is the word to describe it, but you had the team of Superstar Billy Graham, the Barbarian, and what were they called, like Conga the Barbarian or something like that at this point? Uh, I think he had just dropped Conga, but you're right. He was being called Conga for a long time. Right, and he's a man you know pretty well as well in the, in, in the industry as well. Oh, yeah, love, Bar- love Barbie. Yeah. Sweetheart. And Abdullah the Butcher, and they face a three-man team of Manny Fernandez, Buzz Tyler, and Sam Houston. And uh, some fans may know Sam Houston in real life, I believe, is uh, Jake the Snake's brother. Right. And uh, ex-husband of Baby Doll. Yes. Yeah, that part I didn't know. Well, fa- maybe, not yeah, to me, fa- maybe you told me and I forgot. But uh, He's a father for two children, but yes. Okay. And so th- this is, the heel team is being managed by Paul Jones. We've talked about Paul Jones. If you want to know more about him, go back and listen to our tribute show to when he passed. He was a longtime uh, stalwart here in the Carolinas and had quit wrestling on a regular basis and become like this reviled middle-of-the-card heel man. Right. Even though most of his success in the ring was as a babyface. Right. And it's what fans nowadays know him more as, just simply because there's just not a lot of videotape of his heyday in-ring in the 60s, you know, Mm -hmm. or sorry, in the 70s. So he had a tendency to uh, manage freaks, for lack of a better term. And so superstar Billy Graham, was he wasn't doing the tie-dye just a few years earlier world champion for Vince gimmick. He was shaved his head and he was doing the, the karate gimmick, but he was still jacked. And he was still, even though the fans down here were, did not follow up North, we knew he was a former world champion. We did. Right. Barbarian. What more can you say about barbarian? He's just, just he's much like along the lines of, of the road warriors. Here's this guy who's jacked in a way. We've never seen a guy jacked before paint on his face and a weird haircut. And he's athletic as hell. And Abdullah was well-established as just a, a, a bloodthirsty maniac. And you've got this ragtag team of baby faces and Manny Fernandez, who uh, he was the tag team partner of Dusty Rhodes earlier in the year where they were the world tag team champions and they dropped the belts to the Russians. And Avalanche Buzz Tyler was a local hero. He was from South Carolina. He often billed himself as the Carolina Gamecock, which, of course, is the mascot of the University of South Carolina. And oh, yeah, because I'm about to say that's going to give a modern audience a whole different visual. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So but but Avalanche Buzz Tyler was he was that 60, 70 look, you know, barrel chested, full beard, just you know, wore like a butcher singlet. He, he looked like a guy just just from my uh, first impression. He looked like a guy that probably would have looked like a heel because because he was barrel chested with the beard and the and the whole nine yards. But right. uh, he was obviously a baby face in this match. Yeah, because once again he was from this area, so they. And they played up on that. And then mm-hmm. Sam Houston was this up-and-coming, skinny baby face who, in my opinion, he was, to be honest with you, full transparency, Sam Houston in this era was my favorite wrestler in wrestling mm-hmm. in this era. And Sam is, I would put Sam just a skosh behind Ricky Morton and Ricky Steamboat is his ability to sell and make it believable. A lot of that had to do with just he was so skinny. He was tall, but skinny. And he did the cowboy gimmick, obviously, and... He had just started to get a push. He was one of those guys that had started out as an enhancement talent and got beat up on TV by push guys. So Sam Houston was just getting started to get a push that had been started a few months before this with him coming out to help either Dusty or Magda. Maybe it was both of them. But he interfered and wound up getting his arm broken by the Andersons, I believe. might have been Tully. But this is pre-Four Horsemen, but 
they're still top heels in the territory. And he even wrestled with like a cast on his arm. For, so he's just coming off that injury and just starting to get a buzz as a young up-and-coming guy. And this is by and far the most high-profile match he's had up to the you know, that makes sense. Okay. Question. Another guy who uh, you know pretty well was involved in this event. That was the Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Bell. All right. All right. <laughs> brother, brother. Boogie Woogie Man. Uh, but Hammerstein. Yeah. Yeah, Dad. Yeah. And he was facing Paul Jones in a dog collar match. Now, I remember hearing about this angle. I didn't really watch the angle itself. But Paul Jones had and his army that we were just talking about had this ongoing war with Boogie Woogie Man. And I, I think it went on for <laughs> probably over a year, I, I, I think. Because sometime after this, I think they did the, the hair match. But mm. in this one, this was just an attack, really. And the heels attacked Jimmy and smacked him in the throat with Paul Jones's cane. And the story Close was... Lined up. The clothes yeah. lined up. They held up, I think, Barbarian held one end of the cane... Superstar Billy Graham held the other, and Abdullah whipped him into it, and they clotheslined him with it across his throat. Okay, and that caused so much damage to his throat that he was unable to speak. So he would bring out a chalkboard and try to write what he meant, like, I'm sorry, I can't talk, or something like that. Similar to uh, what Anthony Hopkins did in uh, Legends of Fall, I want to say, that movie in the early 90s. That was one of the greatest angles I've ever seen, and... There are very few guys in the history of our business that could have pulled it off. Jimmy Vine is one of them. Right. <laughs> and, and he would get emotional and start writing faster so you couldn't read what he was saying on the chalkboard. And I remember one of them, he got so emotional, he just ended the promo with writing, we are the world, because that was a big <laughs> hit at the time. <laughs> yeah, also, uh, there there were Rambo references as well, because this is when the second oh, Rambo yeah. movie had come out. <laughs> so if you look at the match prior, Manny, Buzz, and Sam were guys that had come to the aid of Jimmy Valiant in this long-running feud. So okay, so that, that well, explains like, like the... we've like we've always said about about the Paul about Paul Jones, he was your ensconced in that middle of the card heel stable feud, and Boogie was the guy that was the focus of his attacks, and Boogie had a, a, a rotating door of of other baby faces to help him out. And, right. you know, Buzz Tyler, Manny Fernandez, Sam Houston are the three at this time period that are helping him out. So Boogie had challenged Paul Jones to a match. And Paul Jones, like we just said, was actually a very accomplished wrestler. So he yes. accepted the match. But what he didn't know was that Boogie had gone to management and made it a dog collar match, which I think, if I recall correctly, this is just trivial information. I, I, I seem to recall it being Raven's favorite gimmick match was the dog which collar I, match. You, but you remember the dog collar match had been, just been established two years prior by the great, you know, Starcade first Starcade match between Piper and Greg Valentine. Right. So it was it was a known gimmick match in this territory, but we hadn't seen one in two years. Okay, something so this is the first one they did since Starcade. Okay. Right. And the thing about that is there's something to be learned from that for modern day bookers. Just because a gimmick match works doesn't mean you go right back to it. What does Jim Cordette always say? You can't miss me if I don't go away. Right. The fans can't miss a dog collar match if that becomes a, a common thing. Right. I could go on a whole rant about how WWE now has entire events just scheduled around gimmick matches. So they just, it's like they have TLC, to. TLC. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Elimination Chamber, all, all that stuff. It's like they, they build this stuff 
they, it's like they, they tell you ahead of time that there's going to be this match before we even know who's going to be in it, which makes no sense. But that's mm-hmm. classic wrestling. Match, so. Right. But once again, and that's why literally if you look at this card, those two matches are the middle of the card. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it's to a T. So the next tag title match was very interesting for its time because it was, you could say, an, I, and I don't want to say it interpromotional, but the, it was billed as a unification match. You had the Russians of Ivan Koloff, Nikita Koloff, and Crusher Khrushchev. They were the six-man tag titles, but they also had the NWA World Tag Team titles. And they had the Freebird rule, where any two of the three could defend the World Tag Team titles. These NWA World Tag Team titles, that was the Mid-Atlantic version. Right, right. Yeah, the Mid-Atlantic belts are the ones that are still recognized to this day in WWE lineage. I mean, the WCW titles is what I should say as far as WWE. Yeah, these are the same titles that the Rock and Roll Express, the Midnight Express, the Steiners. Mm -hmm. uh, Harlem Heat. Harlem Heat, all of them would hold. The Outsiders, same Mm -hmm. belts. Right. That's the lineage, these titles. Right. And the Russians, and see, we're both old enough to remember the 80s, obviously. And Mm -hmm. it was a common thing where the Soviet Union was often just called Russia, even though Russia was only one one country. Yeah, it was only part of the Soviet Union. But that's that's real like real life history. We're talking wrestling. It's just it's one of those things that always bugged me even as a kid. But so the Russians had the Freebird rule. And they were, of course, the big, mean, nasty, evil communists. And they were supposedly under orders from the Kremlin. You know, it, it's like, it's the closest thing to something WWE would have also done because there was a lot of that right. America versus the world type. Well, heck, um, they just did it a few years ago with Rusev claiming he right. was getting his orders from Putin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they. So get, this, is, this is not an old trope in wrestling at all. Right. But they had... Uh, domination on those tag titles and then i think i want to say it would have been their debut for crockett was the road warriors and they were the awa tag team champions they were coming over from Vern from the awa and i believe how this worked is Vern had sent them tapes of like promos and matches and stuff like that there wasn't anything that they were actually there at the time right 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 and the road warriors were already known to the georgia crowd because they had been put together, Auk and Animal had, as the Road Warriors by Ole a, a couple years earlier in Georgia, like 83, 84. Okay. And then they went, they left Georgia and went to Minneapolis and worked for Vern and got his titles. So they were coming back. It's just the difference is now Crockett owns Georgia, not not what it was when they left. Okay, so but this Ole would have still- been probably a few years after they were part of the larger Legion of Doom stable. Right. Yes. Yes. With, with that, that was, it was Jake Georgia Sheik as well. and uh, I want to say Bundy. King Kong Bundy, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the manager then was not Precious Paul. It was I want to say it was Oliver Humperdinck, wasn't it? Maybe at some time. I think I think Paul was there at some point though. Well, Paul has, of course started out as a wrestler and was an over wrestler in the Georgia territory. For injuries, made him move into the managerial role. Okay. Yeah, I but knew he, he was. I knew he had success as a wrestler. Right. Well, you can see that in his build. He mm-hmm. obviously oh, yeah. was a, was a, he went to the gym with, 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 with Mike and Joe. So, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he, the road where you're right. I, I'm trying to remember back as a fan since they hadn't been established yet with the Black Sabbath Iron Man. This was the start of that because if I remember right, the vignettes that we were getting as fans in preparation for the show were showing these highlights of the road warriors with their nobody looked like them at that time. Nobody mm-hmm. was built like them at that time. Nobody was just steamrolling opponents like they were. So they were very unique. 
And I, if I remember right, the vignettes were Dusty being the genius that he was. Hey, he said it to Iron Man, and it just fit. I don't know of any popular song that wrestlers used in this era that fit the wrestlers more than Iron Man fitting the Road Warrior. You know, right. there were a lot of great ones. Tom Sawyer by Rush was Carrie Von Erich because he was the modern day warrior. Of course, mm-hmm. that's the first line of Tom Sawyer. That made sense. Everybody Wants You for Eddie Gilbert was worked. Right, a rock man. and Roll's King worked for the Rock and Roll Express. The Midnight that's- Express coming out to the theme of Midnight Express worked. But right. none of them. And those were all great. Mm-hmm. Even I, the Tiger, fit Hogan because of the tie-in with Rocky Three. Right. That, that was the example I was going to give along with, and I think around this time, Ricky Steamboat was in WWE, and didn't he use Sirius by Alan Parsons Project, I want to say? He did. He did. He did the intro. Yep. yep the, the, the keyboard, that synthesizer part. And that, mm-hmm. that was fitting. The only thing that even comes close to me of fitting Iron Man to the Road Wars is maybe the Freebirds coming out to Freebird. Right. By Skinner. And even they didn't use that long until they, they did the battery, which was also very female. It was an original song. Oh, yeah, so, absolutely. It makes sense. But that was essentially, this was a, yet another Hoss fight where you're bringing guys into the territory that are established in one half of it, and there you go. It's just a, a unification match, which I know for you has you at hello. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I love tag teams. I love tournaments and I know a lot of unification matches in the, these days didn't actually wind up being unification matches, but the, how would you say the allure is there? You got the top guys from right. two different areas going at it. Right. Supposedly, there can only be one winner. Now, the NWA United States champion, again, this would have been the uh, the Crockett title then, right? Right. Right. This was held by Magnum TA, and mm-hmm. he was another one that was kind of getting that, we were talking about the Road Warriors, how... They would win matches in seconds. That's kind of what Magnum was doing for his enhancement matches. He literally would win matches like 20, 30 seconds. Yep. A typical Magnum TA television match was literally this, at this era. He gets jumped from behind by the job Mm -hmm. guy. He would either cut immediately cut him off or reverse an Irish whip attempt by the job guy, turn that into a drop kick coming off the rope, and then pick him right up and go straight for the belly to belly. That was a standard Magnum TA you were going to see that drop kick, and you were going to see the belly to belly, but of course, his finisher. And Magnum was a six foot four guy who weighed two hundred fifty pounds and was and was ripped and could throw a beautiful drop kick and get full extension. So yeah, those were his two big moves. Right. And, <laughs> and you're talking 1985. I'm sure most of the people listening to this have heard of the name, but this is 1985. Magnum PI was huge on TV, and mm-hmm. Magnum had the stash. So kind of play off of Magnum PI, they called him Magnum TA. Based off his real name, his real name Adams. is Terry Allen. Terry Allen, okay. Um, and you would actually hear guys in interviews talk about Terry. Mm-hmm. Or our, our Dusty gave him the nickname The Boss, playing off Bruce Springsteen being The Boss. And, of course, Bruce Springsteen was huge and all over the charts at this point in time. So, But Magnum, in this match, is wor- working Kamala, who is, yes, Kamala the Ugandan Giant, who we just lost a few mm-hmm. years ago, being managed by Skandor Akbar, this is not an angle we had really seen on television around here because Magnum, like you had alluded to earlier, in preparation for where Dusty saw him down the road, had kind of teased a, a few with Ric Flair over the world title. And he had had the run where they brought Wahoo back in and briefly turned Wahoo heel. So Wahoo, he could beat Wahoo for the U.S. title, getting that proverbial rub, so to speak. So they didn't really have anything because of all the other matches on the card the ones we've already listed and what, what we're going to talk about, 
They didn't really have anything for Magnum to do, but you can't not have your U.S. champion and this guy you're wanting to strap, strap a rocket on at this big show you're going to have. So they just brought in Kamala, which was the last guy he had feuded with in Mid-South. So they just kind of imported this this angle that actually had played out on another territory for the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, so, that, that makes sense. And we, we were talking about Crockett being a heel territory where you had mm-hmm. the, the, the heel main champions. And certainly Magnum would be a case of the Dragon Slayer. So it seems like maybe the, some of the secondary champions were the Dragon Slayer, meaning they were the right, champion right. and you kind of had the Dragon of the Week or the Month show up and it's, it's and, the role uh and you gotta remember this is a strange thing we're in a transition period where the business is changing where crockett now has all the power in the nwa and the reigning touring world champion happens to call that territory his home territory that normally wouldn't be the case normally your top title was your top title and you only got the world champion on two three times a year well it just happened that the world champion also called that his home base right. so that made the u.s title secondary whereas most of the time it wasn't it was the top title of the team, you know right speaking of flair he at this time you said we were they were he was trading words with magnum i think around mm-hmm. this time they had also done the story where flair had bought magnum a nice suit and magnum's all looking at oh wow this, this this is a really nice suit i don't think i've ever worn anything this expensive or something like that. and then he rips up the suit and uh, in yeah, front of Flair. Great, great, great. And there was a nice touch to this because Magnum r- rips up the suit. Flair tries to attack him. And like you said before, Magnum basically had had the two moves that he used in his match and he hit the belly to belly on Flair. And I think even earlier in the night on this this episode, uh, Magnum had pinned somebody with the belly to belly. It was one of those. It was just, it was over so quickly. Nobody was able to kick out of the belly to belly. So he just hit his finisher on the world champion. And then That's how you get a guy's over, ladies and gentlemen. You have yeah. him beat guys in under 20 seconds with his finishing move. Yeah. It's funny how that works, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That, that didn't start with Goldberg. It, it's a time honored no, no. thing. <laughs> and what I thought was an extra layer to this, and one of those little things, was Magnum went back to the broadcast position after laying out Flair and handed the world title back. And he said, next time I'm holding this world title, I'm gonna, I'm gonna win it, or something, something to that effect. Yeah, and then next left. time I, I'm gonna take it from like my, my you know, like legitimately. Yeah. Right. And then after Magnum has left, Flair comes to and he's screaming about, oh, he stole my title. Oh, you know, stole his title. And then Tony and uh, David are like, oh, no, 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 here's the belt. He, but he wanted us to tell you this. And then Flair like regains his composure. Like there's that blink in his eye. Like, in his eye. wow, he does have some honor here. <laughs> he didn't steal my and title. You know what I think is, if I remember right, I remember Magnum. I think he opened that when he hands the belt back to David Crockett or Tony Shavai. I can't which one he handed it to. He said, Tell the world champion when he wakes up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like casually. Yeah, like like he knows his finishing move is so devastating. He ain't getting up for a while. <laughs> Tell him when he wakes up, next time I have this belt, it's going to be around my waist because I want it. And then Flair wakes up just incensed that David Cross like, look, you didn't steal your belt. Here's your belt. But he wanted <laughs> me to tell you. But yeah. But remember, once again, talking about this being that transition period between, between where the Crockers had just gotten Georgia that's all 605. They're presenting Flair as a straight heel in Atlanta on their television. He's still presented as a babyface here in the Carolinas. Right. And so is Magnum. They just kept him apart on television. You follow what I'm saying? Right, right. And yeah, it makes sense. Because the match that Flair had at that at this actual event was against Nikita because he was under right. Nikita was under orders from the Kremlin to win the NWA title. So because apparently right. that and, would help them win the Cold War or something. 
and of course, one of the, the biggest angles of the era comes f- directly from this match, where on Crockett tell because Nikita was a Carolina guy, he wasn't a Georgia guy. Where they have on Worldwide, which was the the B syndicated show that Crockett had, that David Crockett was the host of with the rotating color guy. He is interviewing Nikita, and Ivan is doing the talking. And Ivan is explaining what you just said. The Kremlin has given them orders that Nikita is to be the next world champion and we're going to do that and blah, blah, blah. And Nikita's got his back to the camera, which you don't ever do put your back to hard camera, but I won't talk about doing TV. Well, when you got a back like but, Nikita has. <laughs> right. Now, now, remember, Nikita and Ivan are actually wearing street clothes. They're wearing like suit coats. They don't have ties on, but suit coats, nice button-up shirts and mm-hmm. slacks. And David Crockett, like we've talked about before, everybody talks about he was a terrible announcer, but he was actually really great because he was supposed to be the voice of the fans. Yeah, I, I he, would put David Crockett as an announcer. You you put against most of the guys around now. I'd say David's better than most of the guys you see doing commentary today. Yeah. And David is speaking during this interview what the fans were thinking. Hey, if you don't like America, leave. Right. Why are you going to come over here and cut us down? I think I can make this analogy that if it was a movie or a regular TV show, David is the eyes who the audience would see through, if that makes any sense. Yes. And he's saying this. He's like, hey, look, if you don't like America, leave. We didn't ask you to come here. And Nikita just Russian sickles David Crockett onto concrete. Now, granted, David was a trained wrestler. As we talked about in our last episode when we gave the history of his brother and his family's promotion, he was the only one that was a trained wrestler. So that set up David becoming the special guest referee in this match. And I don't know if you want to stack the deck against the heel like that. Usually you stack the deck against the baby face, but it actually worked in this situation, you know. And some of my favorite vignettes in the history of pro wrestling from any angle come from this, where they show Uncle Ivan trading nephew Nikita to get ready for this, this world title match. And they make a big deal. It looks like somebody's basement. And they're actually even calling it like Uncle Ivan's dungeon, and it's this old school grind. It, it, it looks, it looks like the, the like the barn that that Rocky trains in, and Rocky Four. Yeah, it looks like a dungeon. Yeah, Drago's <laughs> training. Yeah, and there's like this like where he puts a, a towel across Nikita's forehead and then wraps the Russian chain around it, and Nikita's like going against Ivan's resistance, strengthening his neck, and they have the old heavy bag, like the boxing heavy bag that they've taken a promo picture of Ric Flair in a suit, and Nikita's repeatedly sickling the picture. And instead and of punching just, in the bag, he's clotheslining the, <laughs> the bag. Yes. Yeah, it's just, yeah, exactly. And it's just great vignettes that you're believing as a fan, these guys are really taking this world title shot seriously. Funny how when you treat a title important, fans take it importantly. Isn't that? Once right, again. <laughs> right. I don't want to go off too much of a tangent, but it's relative here. Because um, we're talking about popular movies. I mean, obviously, Rocky Four, I think, was around this time. So you had the whole mm-hmm. thing with Rocky against I- Ivan Drago. But even the one before that, Rocky Three with Mr. T, they showed Rocky kind of being around the fans and, and the allure. And, and he's doing interviews and stuff and helping kids. And then there's Mr. T just training, 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 training. What is one of the most iconic moments in all the Rocky franchise? Rocky hitting the meat in the butcher shop or mm-hmm. in the meat yeah, processing. Yeah, from the first one. Yeah. Yeah, the cow carcasses. I mean, it's old school. Just you train whatever you got, you know. And so they're kind of telling this story. In fact, there was a really interesting promo in the setup for this match where it almost could have turned Nikita babyface, but it didn't because the the tensions were so high between America and the Soviet Union at the time. Where he basically says, "You Americans, you make no sense to me. 
Ric Flair has more money than you. He looks down on you. He thinks he's better than you. I am from the Soviet Union. I am, I am like you, working class. Why you cheer for him and not cheer for me? Which he kind of makes a good point. Right, I right. didn't. 15-year-old Jonathan Bolick didn't see it that way in America. But it's like you say, that's some of the best heel stuff is when they put their own spin on it. You're like, well, eh, there's a nugget of truth there. And remember, correct me if I'm wrong, they didn't really make that big of a recurring deal about it, but in storyline, at least, they tried to tell you that Nikita's father was American and his mother was uh, that would Russian. Be later on. That would be later on. Okay. That was post baby faced her. Okay. And they and then and eventually they even said he wasn't even from Russia. He was from Lithuania. You're getting ahead. You're getting ahead right. of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> when he came down here from Minneapolis, Scott Simpson, Dusty saw money in him. And how could mm-hmm. you not? Because we've said before, look at the guy. Yeah, he looks like he could win a fight, but you look at the guy, and and, and the name Scott Simpson doesn't exactly strike fear into the hearts of opponents. No, but he was willing to shave the head, and he did the Russian accent, he grew the mustache, and, you know, you put him with Ivan. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I think Dusty's booking him, Nikita, and especially in this era right now, 85, when he, 485, when he first came in, is the textbook way to build a monster foreign menace heel. Just is. Right. The only other guy I've even seen close was Pac Song down in Florida. Mm-hmm. And once again, Dusty was involved in that too. That was the guy Dusty turned on to turn babyface in the 70s, which is pretty much the bulk of our championship wrestling from Florida episode. It was talking about that particular angle. I just think it's kind of funny that since we're talking about Flair being the heel on Georgia, but the babyface in mid Atlantic kind of means we're talking about the dragon slayer and the dominant heel champion i guess you could say flair was both at the same time <laughs> he kind of kind of was <laughs> and and i think the way even the georgia people came along and those that weren't when he when he hit this poor defenseless announcer that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back and as you pointed out before the vibe you'd always gotten about this match was well rick flair might be an asshole but he's our asshole <laughs> that was kind of that's kind of the vibe but that was that was pretty much the story that was presented was that you may not like rick flair but he's an American, and, and, I, and I'm going to stand up for America against this evil Soviet. And if I recall correctly, it was one of those cases where they were going to, like, fine or suspend or take action against Nikita for doing this. And Flair right. insisted to that they should not suspend him because he wants to get revenge in the ring for what happened. Right. And that's Babyface yeah. 101 right there. It is. Uh, I've said it before. Flair is arguably the greatest heel of all time. But when Flair wanted to Babyface, he was very effective at it. Right. When, when he's a heel, he's the jet flying, you know, limousine riding, blah, blah, blah. When he's a baby face. Well, I think it, he is it, when he's the baby face, too. He says he doesn't rub your face in it. Like, that's what right. he's it, he, he will play it more like be, because he's achieved this through hard work. Because even as a heel, Flair works hard. Right. And he never shot away from it, even as a heel. He'd say, I, I go to the gym every day. I work out hard. I'm a great athlete, uh, a God-given talent, but I work hard, too. It's just he gets so much more braggadocious and rub your nose in it as a heel. Like instead of being, I have all this because I'm the world champion. I have all this because I'm the world champion and you're not. (laughs) You see the difference? Yeah. Mine's gold. Yours is silver. Yes. Yes. That was actually a promo. He kept one time on Magnum. (laughs) My my belt is gold. Yours is silver. Gold is better than silver. (laughs) But yeah. And the main event of the show was actually for the television title, not the NWA title. Probably because it was a, a steel cage. It, it was, in right. those days, they couldn't just lower the cage down you know, with modern technology. Especially in an outdoor arena. Because like you said, this yeah. is at a baseball field. This is a, the American Legion field. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, the Cuts owned the, the minor league team in Charlotte. They had the connections with the baseball people. So, Right, right. It makes sense. But the uh, NWA television champion, Tully Blanchard, with Baby Doll, 
faced Dusty Rhodes. And the build-up to this, Dusty was a constant presence on Crockett programming. Yes. And you'd see him often cut. Right. Well, yeah. And, and he'd, he'd often cut multiple promos during a single episode. I think that's why sure. when we hear Dave Meltzer talk about the Hard Times promo and the people that watched TBS at the time, that promo by Dusty's standards was his I mean, middle it, road. It, it, Right, right. It, it was good, but he was cutting good promos to great promos multiple times throughout the day. But he wasn't the oh. only one. I mean, not much long after this, you got Cornette and the Midnight's coming in. Well, Cornette's cutting, what, two, three promos just that good every game. And Ric Flair's cutting promos, two, three, a show, just as good. Tully's probably cutting one or two just as good. Orange cutting one just that good. You know, even Boogie was hard to understand, but his, inter- his promos were entertaining. <laughs> All right, Daddy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kiss you later. You know, that, you know, it was like, it wasn't that Dusty wasn't a great promo, and it wasn't that that wasn't a great promo. It was. But everybody was cut promos that good. I mean, the right. promo segment on Crockett Television was, I used to hate it at the end of the year when a lot of the guys were taking some time off to spend time with their family, and there wasn't a whole lot going on. You could tell in the, in the, in the syndicated television, because it'd be all the lower card guys that weren't good promos. And I remember just painfully watching Sam Houston one time cut a promo in like a December. And I was like, Sam was not a great talker. You know, I was tagging with Nelson World. And Nelson was a good talker. Nelson's promo was fine. But then you put on, uh, like, you know, even the guys you don't think about in Crockett, because they didn't get a lot of mic time. When they gave them the mic, they were good. Pistol Pez Watley, Ron Bass, you know, basket cut mm-hmm. promos. They were, they were yeah. entertaining. Paz was the great example. You know, when, when he was the baby face before they had him turn a year later on, on he, he'd come out and he knew he wasn't figured into any angles, but he would mention all the heels and he would mention about all the baby face and list all the baby faces, including himself. We're going to make sure these heels, you know, are come up and what mm-hmm. more do you not want as a promoter? You got a right. guy who's a middle car baby face. Who's mentioning all your baby faces, all the heels that got beef with and all the towns you're going to be running. You as a booker will take that any day of the week. You know what? Any day of the week. Uh, absolutely. It's yeah. like, and, and, and I mean, this was fun to listen to. He had a good rap. So everybody could cut a promo for Crockett. So this is not a knock on Dusty. I think Dusty might be the greatest promo of all time. But when my understanding is there was a lot of competition in the locker between all these guys we're talking about. You know, it was really a lot of one-upsmanship, which is why you would often see guy do multiple promos. He'd go out and cut his promo, then Dusty'd come out or Magnum would come out. Magnum was a good promo. Very intense, you know, cut this great promo and they go to book, they go to Dusty and go, hey, whoa, 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 he can't, no, let me go back out. <laughs> you know? Right. And Dusty, who kind of editor, he liked that competition. Yeah, go out, go to cut another promo, you know. Right. So Dusty on, on screen had a hit put out on him, kind of a bounty you know, from mm-hmm. Tully. And it was collected on by Abdullah the Butcher, who had cracked right. Dusty's ribs. And I, when I watched Dusty's promo about this, I almost uh, spit up my tea because uh, Dusty claimed that Abdullah the Butcher weighed 400,000 pounds. But they always built him at like 440, I think it was what they right, called him at. Right. right, but so he was at this show with the cracked ribs. And of course, Tully, knowing that Dusty is hurt, he's kind of taunting and beckoning at Dusty uh, from the ring. Baby Doll taunts him as well. So Dusty, being a man, goes after Tully and breaks up a match, really. And Baby Doll scratches Dusty in the eyes because, of course, she's got those long uh, glamour fingernails. Yeah, Lee press on nails. <laughs> I think Dusty even cut a promo later where he had a uh, l- little bit of blood in his, from the nails. Oh, no, Dusty gigging? No, I can't believe you'd use a blade. <laughs> oh, <No, laughs> never. <Right. laughs> 
And uh, Tully had even cut a promo saying, wow, we had that much trouble dealing with a woman. How's he going to deal with the NWA television champion? Right. See, the the setup for this, you need to go all the way back to Starcade 84, where Tully was the semi-main event, which was the main event was Dusty and Flair and then the Million Dollar Challenge, where it was Steamboat and Tully for the the television title with $25,000 on the line. And if I remember, I think Tully had hurt steamboats ribs going into that match <laughs> but tully won the title and that was because that was right around the time that that steamboat left and went up north to vince right mm-hmm. and i can't remember what happened but he wound up losing the belt i can't remember if he, i think he had to vacate it and mark youngblood won in a tournament of course mark and jay had always had that long running association with steamboat so it kind of makes sense at the same time tully had come into the territory from san antonio Remember, Tully didn't have Baby Doll at first. He was being presented as kind of a poor man's Ric Flair. You know, he was a ladies' man who wore nice clothes and all that, and that's how he was being presented. And what they did was to bring Baby Doll in, and I'll go over in another show why Baby Doll came in, and maybe I can get Nicola to come on and actually tell the story herself, but we'll see, all right? Mm-hmm. But, but uh, anyway, when she comes in earlier in that year in 85, and she helped Tully win the TV title and they did like this month long search where Tully would come out on television and on do his promos and talk about how he, you know, he enjoyed the, the company of women. He kind of almost did a Rick rude kind of thing where he's like, but I'm going to find the perfect one, the perfect 10 to care for all my needs. Cause these women around here are just a little bit beneath me. Right. And that was the setup for bringing baby doll in. And when she came in, Baby Doll was dressing the way she had dressed in Texas and Florida, which is kind of a punk rock, Billy Idol, Madonna kind of look. You know, spiked yeah, or, hair, or, or leather. Joan Jett was what came to my mind. Yeah, that's another good one. Joan Jett, Pat Benatar in that era, kind of similar look, you know. Mm-hmm. So the, these were together, and he had just had Abdullah jump Dusty, and they didn't make sense for Abdullah to be with him and Baby Doll. So he basically sold the contract for Abdullah to Paul Jones, which is why... Abdullah's in that earlier match as part of Paul Jones' army, okay? Okay. And during the course of the first half of the year, Dusty and, and Tully traded the TV title back and forth, and, and they slowly began to soften Baby Doll up, have her dress less punk rock, more into the dresses with the high heels and a, more of a glamour-style hairdo. Yeah. L- and, and, less you know, Joan Jett, more Joan Collins. Yes, very much. Or Linda so. Evans, you know, dynasty. For yeah. that era, exactly. But in one of the times that Dusty won the belt from Tully and is trading it back and forth is when they rebrand the title, the World Television. And I remember when this happened, it happened on a 605 TBS show where Jim Crockett Jr. came out and presents Dusty with the new title. And it's one of my favorite belts. And I'm not even a belt mark. You're the belt mark, Seth. Yeah. <laughs> but that silver and red title that the side plates were the logos for all the networks for abc nbc cbs and i just think it's a beautiful and the rumor for years has been and no one's been able to verify it is that this was all dusty's dusty wanted to be able to to say he was a world champion and as much as he had jim crockett jr's ear at the time the one thing jimmy would not let him talk into was putting the world title on him so that no no jimmy knew the money was in rick flair being the world champion right Right. So that was the Dusty one thing. Dusty was just Dusty, one of those guys that doesn't really fit as well on a national level as he did no, in, in, in the niche or in, in, in the territory as the top guy. Right. Exactly. So that was the one thing he could never convince, but he was able to convince Jimmy, well, you know, why don't we make it to world? And this is how I think Dusty probably approached him. 
you getting ready to take on Vince McMahon nationally. So wouldn't it be better if you have two world champions instead of one? That's how I think he sold it, Jimmy. But Jimmy capitulated. They rebranded it the world television title, and it was the world title ever since. And from Dust, in defense of Dusty, the fact that the whole reason behind the creation of the belt was because the television champion was the guy you were going to see every week on TV, unlike the world champion, and you're getting ready to go head-to-head events on a national audience, and you now have the cable overlay to go national, it kind of makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Because it is no longer just a regional TV title. It's a night world television title. It always seemed to me like it was a title that was meant to be defended on regular television, not necessarily in the main events. That was exactly the reason. Because when you had the traveling world champion, you weren't guaranteed to have the world champion on your television every week. And that's why the TV title, in almost every territory that had a TV title, it was the worker's title. It was the guy that everybody would have enjoyed seeing on television. And, and I remember Tony Schiavone saying, at least I think it was Schiavone, during the Nitro days, right around the time Nitro was at its peak, and both promotions were doing pay-per-views every month. I remember Tony uh, talking about how this was a television title, but now with the prominence of Nitro and all these pay-per-views which are on television, this title has increased in stature, something to that effect. And I thought, mm-hmm. even at the time, I thought, what, Tony's right when he puts it that way. It's a word, but I'm buying it. <laughs> right, right, exactly, yeah. So... <laughs> so- that was essentially what had happened there. And then Tully had won it back, which is why Tully's going into this match as the champion. And it was non-sanctioned. How a non-sanctioned match winds up being a title match, I don't know. But it was in a cage. I was just about to ask that question. <laughs> but the other stipulation that was tied to it was that, the, that if Dusty won, he was going to get the contract of Baby Doll and her services for 30 days. An angle that would never fly nowadays. <laughs> right. That was one of the first uh, things I wrote in my notes is, boy, this would never work today. I yeah. mean, you can do it with guys because right now on NXT, it, it's like Cameron Grimes, because he lost a match, is now the butler to L.A. Knight. Right. And it's a it's similar type thing. But a man essentially buying a woman, right. that ain't going to happen nowadays. <laughs> but this is 1985, not 2021, you know? So that was the stipulation going into this match. When we talk about the, out, the, the fallout from that match and, and how that match ended, A lot of this had to do with Dusty wanting to get Baby Doll off of television because the levels of heat she was generating was nuclear. And Dusty understood that if I keep her on the road much longer, she is either going to get in a fight with one of these redneck gals that comes to the shows and get beat up, which is I don't want to deal with, Mm -hmm. or she more than likely is going to beat them up and I might deal with a lawsuit. My, My understanding is Baby Doll was trained. She's huge. Yeah. She's my size. Yeah. <laughs> and she was. And as Ted DiBiase, the million dollar man, likes to point out, she is the only other talent other than himself that he can think of that was a main event level pushed talent on camera talent who both their mother and their father were big time wrestlers. Mm-hmm. This is not a knock on Paige, but both Pages were in indie wrestlers. You know what? Ted DiBiase and Nicola Roberts, both their mother and their father were big name wrestlers. And, and, you know, that should have been your giveaway that her real name is Nicola Roberts because she kept her married name even though she divorced Sam. Because Sam's real name, of course, is Roberts. Right. Same as Jake, right. you know. Okay. But I digress. Yeah. All right. We're <laughs> going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to run down the card itself. Uh, this is Classic Wrestling Memories, and we will be right back. Are you looking for a gaming-themed podcast? Then check out You Just Got Fragged. 
joined host Jared Aubrey and his panel of gaming enthusiasts as they discuss news and accomplishments in the gaming world, and of course, the gripe of the week. That's all at YouJustGotFrags.com, part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family. All right, we are back, and we are going to run down the card results for the Great American Bash 1985. Now, I think how most people who have seen this probably remember it from a videotape that was released sometime 85, maybe 86, that was presented in conjunction with Pro Wrestling Illustrated. What I had seen was, it was essentially hosted by Gordon Soley and Bill Apter. And it, they just kind of presented highlights of the matches. They, they summarized a bit of the angles that, that we had talked about. We just went into more detail about it. Because when I went looking for the show, I noticed that it was not on the WWE Network. And I, I don't think it was even on the original WWE Network. And it's not on the Peacock version I as well. I think it was, but maybe you're wrong. I Maybe I'm wrong. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've seen the show in its entirety. I might have even had an old videotape of it that was the actual show that I bought mm-hmm. at a, house, a Crockett House show and had, years later I had it converted to DVD. I don't remember. I've seen the show probably half a dozen times throughout the course of my life. It's just been a while since I've seen it. You know, right. I'm, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but it, it, it unfortunately is not on the WWE Network. And I would assume part of that is because the more readily available version would have had Pro Wrestling Illustrated and Bill Apter all over it. And that's not something Vince is going to want on his network, I think, is just what it comes down to. Right. Bill obviously got along fine with Vince and, and covered Vince's guys in the magazine. But Vince is kind of particular about anybody else's logo being on his stuff, right? Right, right. It, it makes sense. You know, I'm, I'm not uh, attacking or defending Vince for that. I'm just saying I think that's just how it is. He he didn't he considered other publications as competition to WWE magazine and whatever WWE's tape right. li- library and all that. Right, and so, eventually WCW would create their own magazine, and they wouldn't have the working relationship with that their magazine anymore either. You know, right. So the first match on the card, Nature Boy Buddy Landell and Cowboy Ron Bass, they actually went to a 20-minute draw, which really in the tradition of big shows, that's not really a too rare of, of an outcome. There, were, there was a time when the time limit draw, I think, made for a very good chapter of the storytelling, um, if yeah, that well, makes some sense. Yeah, well, some of you wouldn't know because you didn't grow up in this territory. Mm-hmm. Time limit draws were pretty much the norm even at house shows in that era, in the Crockett's. That's, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a Crockett thing or a Dusty thing, but many of the house shows I went to weekly, it was usually a 10-minute time limit draw between two underneath guys. So mm-hmm. opening matches going all the way. Heck, Rick, Rick Flair's first match, he talked about back in the 70s. For Vern, he went 10 minutes through, meaning he went to a 10-minute time limit draw. So that obviously, had, this is an old-school thing. Most of the match saw Landell smack Bass around. I mean, Landell would, uh, and J.J. would attack Bass when he'd be thrown to the outside. And Ron Bass mm-hmm. would fire up, was doing his fiery comeback, and then the bell sounded to signify the time limit expiring. So it was, the babyface was making his comeback and was starting to run wild, and that's when the time limit drew. So it kind of has that underlying thought of if the match had been longer, then Bass might have actually gotten the victory. But after the match, Ron Bass got a measure of revenge because he was able to put J.J. Dillon in the claw. Okay. But this, it, it fits in with the angle we talked about. No one guy is getting over really on the other because of the finish, but yet you're establishing this this relationship between J.J. and Ron Bass is completely severed. Ron gets his baby face shine back with the claw, but he's completely ensconced with J.J. now. There we go. They can both go their separate ways. Right, absolutely. So the next match was the National Tag Team Champion 
championship match. The Minnesota Wrecking Crew of Ole Arn Anderson against Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer. And I think I'll call him the unpredictable Dick Slater because he was a babyface. Can't really have a babyface that calls himself Dirty Dick Slater. But uh, old... Slater probably is one of the few guys that gets got away with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but all four men brawled before the match began. There was a lot of action back and forth with uh, babyfaces getting a shine in the opening minutes. Heels cut off Slater, got the heat on him. Sawyer got the hot tag. Uh, he effectively had Arn pinned twice, but the referee was distracted. Ole managed to break up a pin with an elbow drop, and then he and Arn switched places. And then when the referee turned around, he didn't see that it was Ole making the cover instead of Arn, and he counted the, the pin anyway. So the heels and, won. And he did, because, he did hit his, his power slam at one point. That was his finisher, right? Right, right. I think that actually was the, the, the second time he hit the power slam. But when the, when the referee was distracted, right, yeah. Right. So not only did the babyface get his visual pin, when he got pinned, it was the wrong man making the pin. So that that's kind of the out, you might say, for the babyface. Right, and it fits even from the get-go. What we said, talking about the angle, leading us, it's just a hoss fight. Mm-hmm. It's just four dudes beating the crap out of each other. And that's exactly what you got in this match, wasn't it? Right, exactly. It's what you would expect when you see all those names involved in, in one match. <laughs> so, yeah, this, this, as JR would say, it has bowling shoe tendencies, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. The Raging Bull, Manny Fernandez, Avalanche Buzz Tyler, and Sam Houston. They beat superstar Billy Graham, the Barbarian, and Abdullah the Butcher when Houston pinned Graham with a roll-up. That's the move that I now call for WWE. It's like the most devastating move in all the sports entertainment, the roll-up, because that seems to be a house. <laughs> uh, well, that all started with ECW and Paul Heyman. Yeah. <laughs> I never understood how you could hit all the foreign objects known to man, dive off the balcony onto the guy in the ring, go through tables. And then he wins the roll-up. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that was Paul Heyman, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. But going by the names here, at least as far as the babyface team, it would seem that Fernandez was the most experienced guy in the babyface team. The heels got the heat on Houston. Was, I, don't, I don't know if he had been working longer in Buzz. I think he had, but he was the better hand. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? He was the most right. over guy in the match on the babyface side. And you were talking about Houston being skinny. He looked like he weighed, what, like 180 pounds or something like that? <laughs> Maybe. Soaky yeah. wet. Yeah, I'm six one and two twenty. I'm pretty is, sure I'm bigger than he than he was in this match. Yeah, but the, but that finish there, I think, is a great example of Dusty's booking. Like I had said when we were talking about the angle leading into the match, the fans they didn't acknowledge it on TV that he was a, that, that Superstar Graham was a was a former world champion because he wasn't NAW champion; he was WWF champion. Right. But all the fans down here knew it, and he was presented by the announcers during the match, leading into it, and during the match, he was the seasoned veteran of the heel team. Barbarian was the new monster and, and Abdullah was the old established monster. So you want to strap a rocket on a guy's back. You take this young guy who's been getting his butt kicked on television on the regular for a year. And then the first time he's ever on a big show, he pins a former world champion. Do I need to say anything else? Right, exactly. And another thing that's worth mentioning is unlike the last match where Buzz got a hot tag, there was actually no hot tag. Houston hit no. a body press on Graham the heels broke up the pin that led to all six men getting in the ring and a six-way brawl. And then during that melee, Houston did the roll-up on Graham and got the pin. So it was one of those right. things. There, were, there, there was the brawl going on, and the babyface still got the pin in that. And if I remember right, didn't Sam celebrate like he had just won like the World Series after pinning Graham? Uh, like jumping up and down. Yes, it was a roll-up. But like you said, he pinned a world champion. He pinned the guy that uh, beat Bruno. I know they wouldn't, like right. you said, they wouldn't say that on TV, but. Yeah. But you get, you get, it's a visual there. And yeah. Sam's, and Sam's celebration, I think, fit 
the the magnitude of that. And if I remember right, Buzz and, and Manny were right there with him, happy for him, right. as a good babyface partners would be. Mm-hmm. I thought that was solid booking. I will admit, rose-colored glasses, Sam Houston was my favorite wrestler at the time. But right. I think that's a great way to strap strap a rocket on a guy's back, you know? Mm-hmm. So the dog collar match, Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant, pinned Paul Jones. I know some people will say pinned, and because in other promotions, the dog collar match would have the touching the uh, turnbuckle rule. Right, but it had always, always been a pin, pin and Crockett because it had been a pin in the Valentine Piper one two years right. earlier. Right. Now, as a compromise, because... Paul Jones was upset at it being a dog collar match. Both men were allowed to have a second in their corner. And Boogie chose Buzz Tyler, who was in the previous match, and Paul Jones chose Abdullah. So, right. And, and Jones, like, he even tried to put the collar on Abdullah, like, somehow that would make it. Right. Uh, I remember work that. that. That was a great spot. They're yeah. like, no, no, it was Tommy Young. I think he's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> Not going to happen. <laughs> okay. Wait, so did, uh, did, did Tommy Young referee the previous match? Because otherwise, I. Tommy Young. But... I might have probably. At the time, you had basically a three man referee crew for the big shows for Crockett. You had Sonny Fargo, mm-hmm. who, of course, knew the Roughhouse Fargo gimmick with the Fargo brothers in Memphis, but he was more of a referee here. Hepner and, and Tommy Young. Those okay. were your three main rest for the Crockett's at the time for big show. So the referee was trying to keep Jones and Tyler apart because Tyler was trying to stop Paul from putting the collar on Abdullah and Abdullah managed to pull out his spike and he, he hit Boogie with it before the match. So Boogie went down. So like when the, when the bell rings to start the match, Boogie's already down and he, so he has to make he's his comeback. Bladed, he bladed too, like right from the jump, didn't he? Right, right. Yeah. So he, so he's bloody and down like right at the start of the, so you, it's a perfect story to have the babyface suddenly have to make a comeback and climb back up that hill, so to speak, and, and have the chase. And nobody mm. sold like, like Boogie when he would blade where he'd like go into like like epileptic seizures. <laughs> right. Well, and you have all that hair. If that hair gets bloodied, wow. You know, oh, yeah. 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 Uh, beard, but, beard or on his head or both. <laughs> right, right. So Jones dominated the early part of the match. Boogie made his comeback. And the finish was uh, Boogie caused Jones to collide with Abby, with Abdullah Butcher, who was trying to interfere. So I think the idea was that Paul Jones collided in with the, like, like Dusty said, 400,000-pound uh, Abdullah the Butcher. <laughs> and then value. 400,000 pounds. That's right. what we'll say. <laughs> yeah. I hope nobody takes us the wrong way, but it's just the way I see it. It's like fat guys insulting other fat guys will just always be funny. I guess that's why I, like I said, spit out my, my, my teeth. Why well, you did a spit take when, when, <laughs> yeah. when Dusty's got that promo. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's an old school trope, and it still works if done right mm-hmm. that the, the heel trying to interfere backfired on him. Right, right. And Boogie followed it up with an elbow drop, which I think was one of his finishers. He used his... That was that, that the sleeper for his two... Yeah. So he got the pin. And then I think he kind of... He, he was able to escape shortly after that, because that's about the time uh, Butcher came back in and started trying to get at him. Right. And once again, it, it's hard for current fans, because he was so Boogie, to mm-hmm. understand. You heard the reaction of the crowd to that. They went nuts. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And so it's, it, it's just, he was over like, like crazy in this, in this territory and he didn't do a whole lot, but what he did, boy, it meant something. It's a finish that is not definitive. So we can still have this feud that never ends continue on. Cause it does for another two and a half, <laughs> three years. This is the feud you know? that does but, not end. <laughs> but, but, but as a guy not growing up in this territory, not being that familiar with Paul Jones outside of a manager, this match is a good example. You could see even at, even at, you know, in his forties. Paul Jones was a hell of a hand in his day. You could see that in this match. Oh, yeah. A- absolutely, yeah. 
I mean, he had pretty punches. His, his timing was good, pretty knee drops, you know. And his promos as a manager, if you were to go back to the Observer Awards in the 80s, he was usually winning, like, worst manager or worst promos. And it's like, you listen to his promos then, and you try to put them to promos now that are all pre-scripted. It's like, they're, they're, they're still better. Again, that's why we're doing classic wrestling memories and not a recent classic. But you look at his, but you look at his contemporaries. Mm-hmm. Jim Cornette. Dusty. Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. Oh, Dusty wasn't a manager. J.J. Dillon, okay, yeah. Bobby Heenan. Mm-hmm. He kind of is at the bottom of that pile, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, when you put it that way, yeah. I mean, it's, it, that's not a knock on Paul. It's just when your competition is that good, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it just is what it is. But, you know, I, I think I've said it before. One of my favorite tag teams of all time was from the early 80s, like 81, 82-ish, maybe, was Paul Jones and the Mass Superstar as the Mid-Atlantic Tag Team Champion. Mm-hmm. Great tag team. And the masked superstar was, of course, Bill Eady, who was also Axe. Of Demolition. Yeah. So you had the big muscle guy with the small technical guy. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, that, 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 that pairing always works. Oh, know? yeah, absolutely. So anyway. Yeah. So we had the AWA World Tag Team Champions, the Road Warriors, with Paul Ellering. And they went to a draw with the NWA World Tag Team Champions, the Russians, represented by Ivan and Crusher Khrushchev, who was Smash uh, later on in Demolition. Mm-hmm. The yeah, the Russians got the heat on Animal. Hawk got the hot tag, ran wild. They lifted Koloff up for the top row power slam. Or I guess it was a middle row power slam. And Khrushchev. Yeah, they, 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 that was their finisher before the doomsday. Mm-hmm. They would do like the old Davy Boy Smith shoulder power slam mm-hmm. off the second. Yeah. Right. And Khrushchev struck Animal from behind with a chair. Hawk managed to wrest the chair away from Khrushchev and used it himself. And the bell rang while the Road Warriors had cleared the ring. So it was, it was officially announced as a double DQ because both sides had used the chair. And once again, I know that makes a lot of especially modern fans mad. Well, they didn't unify the titles. Well, even even as a 15-year-old kid, I realized there's no way the AWA and the NWA are going to have the same tag team. Right. This is a fine finish for this. It's what we wanted. It's four big old dudes beating the crap out of each other. You established the Road Warriors as badasses. You, you, they are going back to Minneapolis with the AWA belts in tow. The Russians are staying here with the NWA belts in tow, and all is happy with them, right? right? And and it's not like these matches happened all the time. These were the type of matches that happened right. once in a blue moon, once every year, maybe twice well, a year, right? And it's like the last one that I can remember of this magnitude was probably five years earlier where I think Flair or Fourier with Flair in his first world title run had a match of the Omni against Backlund when he was a WWF champion. See, so you can see promos like, for that match, yeah. So you so like so like you said, that was in 81 mm-hmm. or 82, and this is 85. So that's three or four years earlier in between these type of matches. So they're a big deal, and they're never, ever going to live up to the to the hype. And even though wrestling was obviously more kayfabe back then, even this, even even the most casual fans realized, it's a work. There's no way some guy's going to be the champion of two promotions or some team. Right. So you just had to kind of know that going into it. And just hope you got a lot of hard hitting action, which these four guys gave you, you know? Right. And we talked before about Magnum, how he kind of had that road warrior push. This match with Kamala mainly was Kamala on the offense, but it was Magnum mm-hmm. just refusing to get pinned. He get knocked down and he kick mm-hmm. out. He get knocked down and kick out. I think even bloodied at a point and. He made his comeback, hit a series of drop kicks. I think it was three drop kicks. Went for the pin. That's when Skandar Akbar broke the pin, causing the disqualification. So Magnum didn't get the pin, but still won. But after the match, he was able to body slam Kamala and hit the belly to belly suplex. So the fans got that visual of him hitting the suplex on the big dude. Right. 
once again, I think that's effective. I'm sure this was probably a compromise because there was so much press coverage there and afters people that cowboy Bill Watts did not want one of his monsters go into another territory and losing cleanly. So mm-hmm. this was a compromise. Let him lose by disqualification and then do the belly to belly after the match so he doesn't lose to. And once again, with not really having anything for Magnum because of all the other matches on the card, it still established him as it kept that huge push of going along. It was a guy he was comfortable working with because he had worked that program with him in Mid South. And it, it was, it, like you said, gave that visual of a guy they were pushing as like this average sized wrestler, but super strong hitting two power moves on a 400 pounder. It all makes sense. And it, it works. It Kamala doesn't, doesn't lose anything going back to mid South after this. And Magnum just looks all the better because mm-hmm. it's a, right. a badass. So there you go. So the NWA world heavyweight champion, nature boy, Ric Flair pinned Nikita Koloff. I don't know how often Nikita got pinned at this point, but I'd imagine it was pretty rare. Not mm, very rare. Very right. rare. Koloff dominated much of the match. Flair was kind of getting a burst of offense. And really, it's one of those things about Flair. I, I remember this getting pointed out, and I didn't truly realize it until it got pointed out, that Flair, whether he's a babyface or a heel, uh, usually his opponent probably takes two-thirds of the match. Flair's usually selling for the majority of the, and then makes his comeback. Whether it's a babyface comeback or a heel comeback, you know, depends on which role he's playing. Which is unusual. Usually it's the other way around. Usually the heel takes two-thirds of the match. Mm-hmm. And the baby face has a one third, some of that being his shine at the beginning and then whatever the, whatever the comeback is. Right. But Flair, a guy who was known for his selling and his bumping and his ability to get guys over, often called matches that way. He knew what his strengths were mm-hmm. and he knew he could carry a guy. And let's be honest, nothing against Scott Simpson. Well, he's officially Nikita Koloff. He's changed his name now legally. Nikita, on his best day, was not as good in the ring as Flair on his worst day. And behind closed doors, he would be the first person to tell you that. Right. And so by allowing Nikita to have two-thirds of the match, it sells a story. One, because, you know, Rick's the baby face, and he's selling for him, and he can make Nikita look good, which is kind of the whole point of this match. You're not right. taking the belt off Flair. We already talked about that when we talked about the renaming of the world, the television of the world telephone that Carker wasn't gonna let that happen. But you still want to make Nikita look strong and he dominates the world champion in his hometown for a good portion of the match. And you know, I might add that very famous scene that you see on almost any video package they put out about Flair, where there's the helicopter landing on at the outdoor show and they literally roll a red carpet for him to walk out on. Mm-hmm. That was this match. That was this match. That was actually him entering the ring for this match, right? Yep. Yeah. What they did was, I think it was the CBS affiliate in Charlotte carried Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. So obviously they had good dealings with the Crockett's and Crockett set it up to use one of their news choppers. And so uh, he flew. So Flair, instead of going to the building, went to the televisions and the pilot and him and I, one of the sportscasters from that television station flew out. I'm sure they called him on the phone or walkie talkies or whatever. And then that, so they had the big elaborate ring entrance for Ric Flair. Yeah, I'm sure you you know what I'm talking about. You've seen oh, it yeah. before. Yeah, they, they put I mean, it on the uh, videotape. It, they just only showed about 20 seconds of it. But that was Flair's ring entrance. They started the, the Flair music, and here comes the, the chopper over the horizon. Mm-hmm. And it lands, and they roll the red carpet out, and Flair and all his glory with his robes on walks out. It is iconic because it is so befitting of his stature as the world champion and the gimmick of the nature bull. Right. He's so special. He is going to be flown by, by a local news chopper to a building, you know? 
Now, the turning point in the match was I even tried to help Nikita hit a spike pile driver. Uh, now, David Crockett, who was the referee for the match, yes, the same David Crockett that got clotheslined by Nikita, I think the story is that it was showing that even though David Crockett had been attacked by Nikita, he was still trying to call it uh, fairly. I know some people would look at the three count, mm-hmm. but but for the most part, I think David did call the match fairly. And that looks like I even might have missed this, the pile driver. I don't know if David was supposed to get bumped or what, but uh, a fan ran into the ring. Security quickly intervened and broke it up. I, oh, I, I love David Crockett. Didn't even realize what was going on. And the guy got tackled by security and they kind of brushed the back of David's leg. And David has this look on his like, what the hell was that? But it's, it's once again, I mean, of course it's happened just what a month ago in AEW with Jericho. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I don't care. I know our job as wrestlers is to make you guys emotional and want to rush the ring. Don't. Right. It, it will not end well for you. And, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. That guy's lucky it was security that got him. Yeah. Could you yeah. imagine what happened if Flair and Akita got their hands on him? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> It'd have been real ugly. Right. That guy probably would have gone to the hospital before going to jail that night. Not the other. <laughs> this way, he just went to jail first. <laughs> right. But Nikita lifted Flair for a slam. I think he was. I think he was lifting Flair from from the ring apron into the ring, and Flair fell on Nikita. So it was kind of a quick pinfall. It was a surprise pin. It's not like Flair made him submit with the figure four or anything. Right. Uh, I think it's a fair enough finish. He's Rick Flair's the baby face, and he out wrestled the heel. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. And then after the match, Khrushchev ran out. There was a triple team on Flair. Other wrestlers tried to run in to make the save, but they were kind of all laid to waste by uh, by the other Russians. Getting the Russians heat back. Right. The main event, American Dream Dusty Rhodes pinned NWA television champion Tully Blanchard with a pile driver in the cage match. And he also won the services of, of Baby Doll for 30 days. Like we said earlier on, it's a pretty safe bet this angle couldn't be done today. Man winning the services of a, of a woman. And, right. uh, and it, it, it was an ugly pole driver. Mm-hmm. But remember, the pole driver was very well established as illegal. But like we said earlier, this is a non-sanctioned match. So there, there's Tully's out. Tully's mm-hmm. out could say, oh, this was a sanctioned match. He'd have been disqualified for pole driving me. There right. you go. Right. And now as far as the fallout of this match, we talked before about how this was a way to get baby doll off tv so dusty won the title he won baby doll for 30 days so if you want to explain the fallout of this match and and what it meant for the next 30 days yeah so they what they did was it was it was i once again one of my favorite vignettes of of ever in wrestling they had her coming out for like two weeks in a row with dusty and not listening to what dusty would say and just kind of pouting so then after two weeks, they did a vignette on, I want to say it was Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, where Dusty had sent Baby Doll to Nelson Royal's ranch uh, outside of Charlotte to teach her how to be a proper lady. And he and, and Nelson was going to teach her how to clean the stables and cook and, and do, I hate to say this, but woman's work, right? <laughs> Again, and one of the reasons did, why this wouldn't be done today. Wouldn't, <laughs> it would not happen in 2021. So the vignette is Dusty taking a film crew to Nelson's ranch to film how this is progressing. And remember, Nicola, she knows how to do all this stuff for real because she's from Texas. She grew up in Texas. So they show her like cleaning out the stable and, and, and brushing the horses and all that kind of stuff. And it was really shot at Nelson's ranch at Morsel, North Carolina. And the, the vignette ended with her begging Nelson and Dusty to let her ride a horse. 
and they were both agreed that she had earned that. So she gets on a horse and then takes off and jumps the fence. And 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 Nelson's mad because it's his it's his prize stallion Floyd. And and he's like, where's she going? And Dusty looks, Dusty looks at Nelson. Like, I think she just stole your horse. <laughs> Boy, you know. And, and if you know anything about cowboy, that's almost as bad as murder, right? Stealing his horse. <laughs> Baby doll must have gotten the horse to trust the hell out of her in a very quick <laughs> manner. Right, right. <laughs> so they do an angle where. They show the vignette, and David Doll's nowhere to be seen. Nowhere to be seen. I think after like one more week, she shows up, and she apologizes on TV to Dusty, and she's all nice to Dusty, and she tells him she's learned the error of her ways and all this. And then a week later, she's doing this, and it's all a setup. Mm-hmm. Tully comes out and jumps Dusty from behind, and Baby Doll helps him, and she's laughing, and he cuts a promo on Dusty. This was a setup all along. We had planned this. When she jumped the fence with that horse, she rode down the road and called me on a payphone. Mm. And I've had her like down in Jamaica or the the Bahamas for the last two weeks enjoying it. And when it was time, we brought her back and we suckered you in, Dusty Rhodes, because you're a a sucker. And it did. It worked. It it got Baby Doll off television for about three weeks to let let that, that nuclear heat cool down a little bit. And it was a setup for Tully to just be a heel again. Dusty would, of course, go on not much longer after that, like a month and a half later, wind up having to vacate the title because of having his leg broken by the Andersons and Flair in the cage in the Omni. By that point, Tully had moved on to Magnum and Baby Doll became very involved in that feud that, of course, was blown off later that year at Starcade. But it was very effective what they did. Dusty won the title. Tully had it out because of, of the finish being a pole driver. He got Baby Doll off television. And it was a way for a uh, long-term storytelling to allow the, the heel to get his heat back on the babies. Once again, I think brilliant booking. Everybody involved in the angle from Tully to Dusty to Nelson to Floyd the horse <laughs> to <laughs> Baby Doll, they all did a good job. They all did their part. It's storytelling like that that really draws in the casual fan, in my opinion. And, you know, like we said classic, classic memories. I think that's part of what's missing today is you don't have good storytelling like that anymore in any of the promotions. Mm-hmm. All right, so that wraps up our look at the Great American Bash, the inaugural Great American Bash, and we'll eventually do the other bashes. They, they definitely are on the list of shows you want to do because I think it was the following year is when they did the tour. We did like a dozen yep. of them or something like that. Oh, yeah, they did. that was the Summer Sizzler, 1986 Rock and Roll Express Summer Sizzler Tour. That yeah. was, by that point, rock and rolls were in, and they were as big as anything that they'd ever seen in this territory. Mm-hmm. And, and said, hey, it was good for one night. Let's do it for a whole month. So this has been Classic Wrestling Memories. This is volume 38 on the Great American Bash. If you're listening to us for the first time, we can be found at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. we got the social media, Facebook, also at Classic Wrestling Memories. We're on the podcatcher of your choosing. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. Pretty much you name it, you can find us. Let us know what we're doing well. You can uh, give us a follow, give us a review. Let us know if there's something you want to hear us talk about. Really, the only rule that we have is it has to be Attitude Era or older. But I believe we agreed that basically the buyout of WCW is kind of our cutoff point, right? Yep, yep. Anything that or back. Right. So if you want to talk about CM Punk's pipe bomb or his coming back to AEW or the Yes Movement or any of that, nope. Right, correct. Nope, too new, too new, too. It has to be farther back. And uh, Train, if anybody wants to get a hold of you to talk about wrestling or anything else, where can they find you? I'm always available on Twitter at crazytrain underscore JB. You can also find me with that handle just about across all social media platforms. 
I'd love to hear your comments on how you, out of the show, if you learned anything new. And once again, all like Seth said, give us a suggestion. Tell us what you want to hear. I We both have noticed in the last, oh, two, three weeks, we have picked up a lot of likes and follows on the Classic Wrestling Memories Facebook page. So uh, we're hoping that you're not just liking the page, that you're also listening to these podcasts. And we thank all those that are doing that because we don't do this one weekly like Geekville Radio. We strongly suggest you click on that notification bell so you'll know when one drops. We have discussed off mic because of the 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 numbers that we're getting and because of the response we're getting to the Facebook page and other things, we're going to try to be doing these on a more regular basis. But the best way to make sure you don't miss them, click on that notification bell and, and subscribe so you always will get them. Absolutely. Uh, so join us next time. We're going to be back sooner rather than later. We're going to be talking uh, Patriot Del Wilkes, who sadly left us uh, within the last uh, couple months. That's going to be our next episode. And that will be up shortly. So once again, thanks, folks, for listening. And we'll be with you folks again next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. Abdul the Butcher, 400,000 pounds! The meanest man in the world!